This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching through the book of Esther, and today we're finishing chapter 2. If you've been a human for any length of time, you know we like to see ourselves in the extremes. We're either the best thing since sliced bread and God is lucky to have us on his side, or, rightly, we see the flaws in our character and desires and understand how truly broken we are. From that perspective, we can range from total amazement that God would save us and use us for his glory, to doubt even God could use someone so messed up. But the story of Esther reminds us that God accomplishes his will in spite of our flaws and not because of them. He turns our disasters into examples of his grace. That should give us all hope as we listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Last week we started studying the second chapter of the book of Esther and we saw the plan and the protagonist of a bizarre love story. Today, as we pick up where we left off, let me show you the process. So point number three is the process of that bizarre love story, verses 12 through 16 of chapter 2 of the book of Esther. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, for the days of their beautification were completed as follows. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. The young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem to the custody of Shashgas, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. And Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Okay, you remember some of the contextual historical events, right? King Ahasuerus needed an ego boost because of his humiliating defeat in trying to conquer Europe. And now he's remembering that he deposed his wife Vashti. He's starting to experience regret. He needed the comfort and the the consolation of his wife, but now that couldn't happen. Then uh, his advisors advised him to do this ancient version of The Bachelor. And then the story tells us how Esther steps into the scene. The author explains the details of this wife's selection by elimination here, which featured government-sanctioned objectification of women. This is what this is. It's it's a government-sanctioned objectification of women. Contestants had to undergo a year of uh, preparation. We just read about the the whole process here. They had a special diet, special skin and, and hair treatments, and royal palace etiquette. On her appointed day, the queen wannabe 
would request any item of clothing or jewelry available in the harem or any other items that would make her as visually appealing as possible for a one-night stand with the Hasuerus. This is what the Bible is telling us, church. Remember, I told you in the beginning, let's not try to sanitize the book. Let's take Scripture at face value. And when we take the story at face value, we know exactly what's going on here. This is a bunch of one-night stands that the king is having here. In the morning, she would join the other women who had already gone through the quote-unquote audition and would never return to see her family. So she would be property of the royal palace and go to that second-tier harem and, and wait for the king, if the king wanted, to call her back. Now, this lower-level harem, under the care of this guy with the most weird name I've heard so far, Shahashgash, must have been the most depressing place in this royal palace, which, ironically, remember, in the first chapter we determined, according to the translation of the name, was considered paradise. But this is no paradise here. This is a depressing place because the concubines there endure the emotional agony of having been dehumanized, used, and discarded. For later use, perhaps, if the king wanted. Like most women, they longed for a marriage that offered them the security of a mutually committed relationship. Because that is God's design. Anytime you move away from God's design, you will have consequences. If Ahasuerus felt that any one candidate performed according to his fantasies, he would order her to his quarters for a follow-up liaison to make his final choice. This is a pervert. And this guy thought that he could heal his wounded ego by sleeping with as many women as possible. If only he knew that God instituted marriage for two people of opposite genders to enjoy a monogamous, emotional, physical, and spiritual lifelong connection. If only he knew that. But wait, that information was available to him through the many Jews who decided not to return to Jerusalem all he had to do was ask one of them, Hey, listen, how do I cure my troubled heart? Why do I resort to this unhealthy pattern to cope with my emotional wounds? A faithful follower of Yahweh would have shown him from Scripture, God's view of marriage, family, and sexuality, and assured him that the Lord restores broken lives. Sadly, many people today, like Xerxes, Ahasuerus' name, suppress the divine perspective and think that they have a better plan for human flourishing. They think they have a better plan for their own heart. Our society, so deeply buried in immorality, deceives them into thinking that they can heal their emotional scars by sleeping around and or by experimenting with alternative forms of marriage. If only they knew that only God can fulfill every one of our needs. If only they knew. But wait a minute. They're not going to know unless we, who have experienced His saving and sustaining grace, tell them. They're not going to know unless we, who are called to tell them, fulfill our duties and tell them, listen, you don't have to live this way. What you're looking for, Jesus can offer to you. You don't have to, to, to deviate from God's ideal for the family or for human flourishing. Here's a better plan for your life. And according to that plan, single adults who long for the emotional spiritual and physical union that only a God-designed marriage provides desire an honorable institution regulated by the Creator. And through Paul, for example, he instructs, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. 
That's in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. That's what we just saw here in this contest here in ancient Persian. People not fleeing immorality, but fleeing toward immorality. Husband and wife, therefore, must enjoy a mutually exclusive physical intimacy and all purity, respect, and godliness. That's God's plan for marriage. So we're just seeing the opposite here in the story of Esther. Spouses, therefore, must never allow pornography or unfaithfulness in the house or in their hearts in order to flee immorality. Each spouse must also cultivate an adultery-free relationship by ensuring appropriateness with friendships with members of the opposite gender. So men, if you desire the companionship of a woman, here's what you must do. You ask God to check and purify your heart to keep you from treating women the way this guy did here, Ahasuerus did. Get a job and work hard to one day build or buy a house for your family. And ladies, if you long to build your own family, likewise, ask God to check and purify your heart, pursue virtue and character excellence, and then look for a man who loves Jesus. Because a man who loves Jesus will understand sacrificial love and will therefore love you like he's supposed to, according to what the Bible instructs. And here's a disclaimer here. You don't have to be married to find emotional contentment. Our culture looks down on singleness, but according to Scripture, remaining unmarried is perfectly acceptable as long as you abstain from physical intimacy. And at the moment you desire that union, you should seek a spouse according to the biblical model. Listen to Scripture again. For this is the will of God. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. So when people say, well, Pastor, I'm not sure what the will of God is for my life. Oh, here it is. God's will for your life is your sanctification, that you live a life of purity, whether you're married or single, that you pursue sanctification, you live a life free from sexual immorality. Because that's not what we see here in the story. In fact, back to the story. Esther's number came up in what would have been December or January in year seven of uh, Xerxes' administration. Haggai, this uh, chief eunuch, remember, two eunuchs. One guy is Haggai, the other one is Shahashkash. But this guy, Haggai, cheated. Did you notice that in the story? He cheated, giving Esther an unfair advantage. Now, in a culture of inverted values, lining up to be used by a pervert is considered an advantage. With insider trading information, Esther dressed up according to Haggai's instruction, which significantly improved her chances of winning. Not hard to figure out. Haggai knew exactly what Ahasuerus liked, so he said, here's what you do, Esther. This is how you're supposed to dress in order to have an advantage over the others. Her stunning look impressed everybody in the harem, even her rivals, and the author highlights for the second time that she found favor, which could only be a work of God. It's not a coincidence. And remember, this is the second time that the narrative is telling us that she found favor. In a few sentences below that, we're told a third time that she found favor. So church, what is the message? That God is behind the scenes, moving in people's hearts in order to give Esther favor, because there is a purpose behind that. So God worked providentially, not only through the plan of this bizarre, sinful love story, and through the process. But also the pronouncement. Listen to verses 17 and 18. The pronouncement. The king loved Esther more than all the women. 
And she found favor. Here it is again. She found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his princes and his servants. He also made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the gift's bounty. So what we have here, church, is that Haggai's grooming of Esther worked. She found favor again. And the impression she made on the king was more than just a one-night stand. It transcended that. The Bible says that she elicited kindness in him, which is obviously divine providence. Because if you know anything about Ahasuerus' life, not only through what Scripture reveals, but from the history books, you know that this is a work that only God can do. Ahasuerus was notoriously an unkind man. But now we're told that Esther found kindness in him. She elicited kindness in this guy. And he gave her, therefore, the golden ticket. Oh, in this case, a crown. And the Jewish orphan of Susa now became the queen of Persia. And this is the rag-to-riches element in this narrative. This is the Cinderella moment. Now, both Esther and Mordecai knew that marrying a Gentile violated Jewish law. They knew. And perhaps that's the other reason Mordecai advised her not to reveal her ethnicity there, because that would have uncovered their sin. But now the story takes an interesting turn. God worked providentially not only through the plan, the process, and the pronouncement of this convoluted and sinful love story, but also through the plot. The plot in verse 19 through 23. When the virgins were gathered together the second time, Then Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not yet made known her kindred or her people, even as Mordecai had commended her. For Esther did what Mordecai told her, as she had done when under his care. In those days, while Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's officials from those who guarded the door, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. But the plot became known to Mordecai, and he told Queen Esther. And Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. Now when the plot was investigated and found to be so, they were both hanged on a gallows, and it was written in the book of Chronicles in the king's presence. What we have here now are two moral dilemmas that the story presents us at this point, and I hope you see them too. The first one is this. Shouldn't Esther have refused to participate in polygamy. She knew better. She was a Jewess. She knew God's plan for marriage. But even though Esther was taken by force, again, let's give her the benefit of the doubt. Let's imagine the Bible says she was beautiful of form and face, so the guards, as soon as they saw her, would have immediately said, well, she is, she's one of them. Let's take her. So she really didn't have a choice. She was taken by force to the harem. But even though that was the case, she should have resisted when approached by the guards and said this, I serve the true God. He forbids me from engaging in any type of immorality and from being unequally yoked. In fact, she should have said, the disobedience of my people is part of the reason he allowed Nebuchadnezzar to take my ancestors captive to Babylon. What a great opportunity she would have had to minister to those guards. She probably would have cost her her life, I'm sure. But she should have said that. Perhaps she should have even quoted Genesis 2, verse 24. A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Or perhaps she should have read to them Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 through 4. 
When the Lord your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them before you, and you defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods." Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. You see, what a, what a great opportunity for her to apply that and say, See, I'm not allowed to go in with you and to be used by the king, according to the, to the law of God here. So her participation in polygamy was compulsory, and she suffered the emotional consequences of violating God's ideal for marriage. There's no question about that. Like every other woman, she longed to be loved and cared for mutually exclusively by her husband, which wasn't the case here. Perhaps she would have preferred a traditional Jewish wedding, but God used her as an agent of divine providence, church, not because of, but in spite of sinful behavior. This is something we must understand here. God is blessing Esther not because of her sin, because God doesn't bless sin. God would never bless polygamy. God will never sign off on these things, but he is blessing her and using her in spite of her sinful behavior. And he allowed the situation, church, for the same reason he allows you and me to be his representatives in a sinful world. The same exact reason imperfect lips proclaim his perfect message. You see, God's perfect redemptive plan is carried out through imperfect people. That is amazing grace. And that is what we see here in the story. Now, according to the book of James, God never instigates anyone to sin, in case you were thinking that that's the case here. Because again, doing so is against his nature. So there are many things that God cannot do. When we say, well, God can do all things, we need to qualify that statement. God can do all things as long as they are aligned with his nature. God cannot lie, God cannot sin, and God can never instigate anyone to sin. James 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. So the story of Esther and many other biblical characters, such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David even, demonstrates that the iniquity of people, the sinfulness of people, can never derail divine plans. So this is how we deal with the first moral dilemma here. Should Nestor have refused to participate in polygamy? And the answer is yes, she should have. She should have said no. She should have drawn the line and, and, and paid the price, paid the cost. But by divine providence, she didn't do this. And where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Here's a second moral dilemma. Would the omission of Esther's Jewishness be considered lying? Remember, Mordecai told her, don't tell anybody you're a Jewess. Don't tell anybody that. Was this considered lying? And the answer is not if no one asked about it, which seems to have been the case in the story because divine providence removed anyone's interest in her background. Apparently, no one cared. Now, does that mean modern-day Christians have biblical permission to hide our faith? Well, Christ had something to say about this. He said this in Matthew 10, verse 33. Whoever denies me before men... I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. 
Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that God will never forgive Christians who, in a moment of weakness and fear, denied identification with him. And we know that that's the case because the man who denied Christ three times was restored to ministry and used of God. In fact, he wrote these very words. Listen to 1 Peter 3, verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. You see, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Peter is telling us this. Peter is saying, don't deny Christ. Always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you. So what we have here then, would the omission of Esther's Jewishness be considered lying? Again, there is no evidence that she lied. But here's more about divine providence. By God's providence, he placed Mordecai at the right time, at the right place, to hear the plot against King Ahasuerus. And because of her preserved relationship with her father figure here, and by divine providence, the new queen acted righteously, you see? Now... We see Esther acting in a way that is compatible with God's word. She acted righteously and alerted her husband about this conspiracy. That is something she should have done, and she did it well. Now, the author of the book informs us that Esther gave credit to Mordecai as a whistleblower. Uh, He might have received some sort of a reward. The Bible doesn't go into a lot of detail here. But by divine providence here, what we have is that he was evidently passed over. It was not the time for him to be rewarded from an earthly perspective because that would happen later, again, by divine providence. And this is important for us to understand because this final act of the scene prompts us to address something very important in our own hearts and in our own reality here. You may wonder when your good work will receive its proper acknowledgement. Joseph, the son of Jacob, would say to you at this time, I know exactly how you feel. You may remember the story that he was blackmailed because of his integrity. See, it happened the the exact opposite. Because of his integrity, as a result, he was convicted of a crime he never committed. Not only was he not rewarded, but he was sent to prison. He received injustice for his good work. He waited decades for his vindication. But in this case, as is in the case of everybody, God is never late or early. He's always on time. Let me share a few thoughts about this, and we'll conclude with that. First of all, nothing we do that glorifies God is a result of our own natural abilities. Do we understand that? Nothing that you produce for God, nothing that you would consider something of a a spiritual value is a result of your own natural abilities, but only a result of His enabling grace. Do we understand that? Because if we're left to our own abilities, we will run away from God. We will curse God. We will run toward our sin. If it were not for divine enablement and His sustaining grace, His sanctifying grace, we would all be away from God. We will never naturally desire God. It has to take a divine act of God. So everything that we do, everything that we would consider a good work, a good deed, has to be the result of God enablement for us. Our virtues are a fruit of His enabling grace, so obviously He should get all the credit for our good works. So instead of saying, man, I deserve the credit, or I should get a thank you for this, no, we say, Lord, all the glory goes to you because you're the one who enabled me to do this. But here's another thought. Nothing you do for the glory of God goes unnoticed by Him. You see, 
He is gracious to allow you to do good works for Him, and He even rewards us for it. So nothing we do for the glory of God goes unnoticed by Him. At the appropriate time, He will personally honor you. According to Paul, we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. That's in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 10 and 11. Now, this is the judgment seat of Christ. Now, don't get the judgments confused here in the Bible. This is not a judgment of whether or not we we'll go to heaven. We're already in heaven when this happens. This is a judgment of our works, an evaluation of our works. In Colossians 3, verses 23 through 24, Paul says... Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord whom you serve. So that notion that we're serving God with whatever we do should be very comforting to us when we think, man, I'm not getting the, the recognition I deserve. I'm not getting the thanks I deserve. I'm not being acknowledged like I deserve. No, whatever we do, we do it for the Lord because we know that He's taking notice and He will reward us at the proper time. It is the Lord whom we serve and therefore He will reward you at the right time. Now in the story of Esther, we have an earthly king who calls himself the chief monarch he gave Esther a place of honor in his kingdom and a perishable crown. But the true king of kings invites everyone to his heavenly kingdom, and he will personally give us a crown. And he has scheduled a feast for us much better than the feast of Esther, the feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb. See, I'm looking forward to that one, and I hope to see you there too. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people, just like you, to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.